0: In the book of Psalms, as we read the 122nd Psalm together this morning, the third, you will remember of the Songs of Ascents, Psalm 122, a song of ascents of David, I rejoiced with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord, our feet are standing in your gate. O Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. That is where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to praise the name of the Lord, according to the statute given to Israel. There the thrones for judgment stand, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you, be secure. May there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. For the sake of my brothers and friends, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your prosperity. God will bless once more to our understanding this passage of his own inspired word, thanks be to him. Now we have come, as I said to you a moment ago, to the third of the Songs of Ascents, the third out of fifteen spanning that portion of the Psalter from Psalms 120 to 134. It is of great interest to me that The commentator upon the Psalms, to which I frequently turn in the preparation of this series, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, said of this little section of the Book of Psalms, but it instructs us in the use of wings as well as of words. It sets us mounting up, he says, and singing. And often have I ceased my commentating upon the text that I might rise with the psalm and gaze upon the visions of God. And I trust that this is what we will be doing at least in part this morning together as we come as a congregation to study Psalm 122. But is nothing if it is not a hymn for God's house, arising like sweet and fragrant incense before the Lord, third step of these 15, as this godly man, the pilgrim, seeks nearer and closer communion with the Lord. Now you will have noticed from reading the psalm, together with me in your Bible this morning, that there is in a sense one great theme of the psalm that focuses upon Jerusalem. It is the happy theme of this psalm, as the godly pilgrim, who is still in exile, contemplates the joy of arriving at Jerusalem, the central place of worship, the place which God had chosen out of all the tribes and districts of Israel where his name might be placed, associated with great events of the past, that there he might gather with praise welling up in his heart and prayer arising from his lips for the peace and prosperity herity of God's Zion and all associated with the Lord there. Now I think we're going to see together this morning as we study this psalm that we who are God's people today, not under the old covenant, but under the new covenant, are bound to come in a similar and a deeper and even richer way to the Lord, seeking his fellowship, drawn by his presence, appreciating the dignity of his worship and moved by our devotion to pray as he did for Zion's peace and prosperity. May God the Holy Ghost this morning grant that we may be drawn as it were by unseen cords, by the holy mystery of that Jerusalem, by the majesty of the Lord's presence there to worship the law together, as the psalmist so clearly did. And so I want to suggest to you this morning that there are really three sections to this great psalm. In verses one and two, the drawing power of God's presence. In verses three through five, the dignity of his worship. And finally in verses six through nine, the design of of his purpose. Now look at the psalm with me, if you will, this morning under this threefold division of it. First of all, there is the drawing power of God's own presence in verses 1 and 2. I rejoiced, he says, with those who said to me, let us go up to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing in your gates. O Jerusalem, Now you remember that there is a progression in these psalms upon which I have reflected on the last two Sunday mornings. Each one of them is a further step up, an ascending, as it were, into a closer and nearer fellowship with the Lord. Until finally, in verses in Psalms 132 to 134, at the end of those steps, the psalmist finds him in the very presence of God and with the fellowship of God's people enriching him and enlarging his heart. So then this is a further step and it begins with the thought of the drawing power of God's own presence for his people. And this is the first reason, beloved, for the psalmist's gladness, the drawing power, Of Jehovah's presence within his church. Now there are three things that we need to consider together about this drawing presence of the Lord. And the first is the drawing power of anticipation. It's the first wonderful thing I think that strikes us as we read verses one and two. The joy of anticipation. The overflowing gladness in this man. As he anticipated in his own mind and heart being present in God's Zion with God's people, the prospect of going there to Jerusalem, the prospect of worshiping Jehovah in that place. And it filled his heart and mind with such delight that when he was invited evidently to join a caravan of fellow pilgrims, Journeying up to Jerusalem, his heart bounded and leapt within him at the very thought of it. So it is, you see, a glorious song that we are looking at of a godly pilgrim who is living in rich anticipation of the things of God. He's not yet arrived there at Jerusalem, but he's anticipating it in a rich and godly way. Now there's a problem, of course, in verse 2, in the light of what I've just said to you. Look at it with me. Our feet are standing in your gates, O Jerusalem. It would seem on the surface but he's already arrived there. And his feet are standing within the city. And he's beholding the temple of the Lord. But I'm sure we're meant to understand verse 2, not in the sense of having literally arrived there. Remember, he doesn't reach the city till the end of these 15 psalms of ascents, in Psalm 132, to be precise. But what verse 2 is describing is not his actual arriving there, but his sense of anticipation as he contemplates it. It is so rich and real that he's expressing the confidence of faith. It's almost as though he sees himself there, so sure is his heart's desire that he wants to be there. It is, to put it in another way, if you like, the claim to citizenship and kinship with that city and its temple, even though the citizen has not yet reached the city. Now let me ask you at this point, my dear friends, do you come here on these Lord's Day mornings with that sense of glorious anticipation where your heart and your flesh are crying out, as it were, for the living God of his people? Because insofar as this is a true expression of our heart, It is well with us that we can sing in one of our hymns, as we will do at the end of this service, We love thy house, O God, wherein thy people meet, for thou, O Lord, art there, thy chosen flock to greet. But drawing power of anticipation. But there is the second thing you see the attraction to this man of Jerusalem and its city and its temple. Let us go, he says, at the end of verse 1, to the house of the Lord. And the whole psalm, in a sense, breathes this spirit of longing and attraction. But the center of attraction, note you, is not the city at all. It's not the buildings and the streets to which he does allude in verse 3 a city closely compacted together where the tribes of the Lord go up. But the center of attraction is not buildings; It is the Lord who dwells there. Do you notice in verse 1 it is the house of the Lord at the beginning of the psalm. Look at verse 8. For the sake of the house of the Lord, our God, I will seek your prosperity. At the end of the psalm, that is, Still the thing that is attracting him. In the middle of the psalm, in verse 4, the tribes go up there to do what? To praise the name of the Lord. And beloved, it is precisely this factor that lifts the whole theme of this psalm away from mere national patriotism. The love of a city and its buildings and its layouts and its compactness to an altogether higher and spiritual level where the attraction is not the city itself but the Lord whose presence in glory is revealed there to his waiting and his worshipping people. Now this is the attraction and all is in connection as I say with the supreme fact of Jehovah's presence for him the tribes are gathered. To him, their testimony is about to be given. From him, the authoritative decrees and judgments are about to descend to his people. And the very peace and prosperity at the end of the psalm are nothing if they are not the outcome of Jehovah's presence in the midst of his covenant people. Is that why you come to worship the Lord? Is that the drawing power of this earthly Jerusalem, if I may use that term, here in this congregation? Not the minister, not the choir, not the pulpit in itself and of itself, but your great attraction and your holy desire is focused from beginning and end and in the middle as well upon the covenant God of your salvation. There is anticipation. There is attraction, but thirdly, beloved, there is application, isn't there? What does it say to us, this drawing power of Jerusalem this morning? Well, surely you can already see the real and inner and spiritual meaning of this psalm. And what it says to us is surely this, that what Jerusalem was to the godly Israelite pilgrim, the church on earth is for the Christian today. And that great Jerusalem that is above, the church made perfect that we read of in the book of Revelation, that John saw like a city foursquare with the light of God descending out of heaven. That Jerusalem that is above is made concrete in our fellowship here on earth. And it should lead me, if I am a Christian, to some very practical things. Do I say on the Lord's Day morning, I was glad, I was overjoyed that this is the Lord's Day when I can worship with the Lord's people and go up to the Lord's house to sing the Lord's praises. Or is your attitude, I was obligated to do it because I'm a church member. Or even worse was your attitude this morning that I was inconvenienced by it rather than made glad. Oh, God forbid that such things should be said amongst us. But rather did we not feel the drawing power of the church at worship, like the pull of a magnet, the magnetic force to all of us who hear the bridegroom's voice speaking in the midst of his people. I was overjoyed when they said to me, this is the time and the place and the occasion to draw near to him who is dear to my soul. Oh, you children who are here this morning, God forbid that your parents should come into your bedrooms on Sunday morning and hijack you as it were out of beds Or browbeat you to come to worship the Lord. I want you to cultivate a sense of the privilege and the value of coming and sitting and singing the praises of God and remembering his blessings in your life and being thankful for Christian parents who lead and draw you here, I hope, by the very cause of love. Beloved, it is you this morning who is saying, I was glad to have this opportunity to be here. And if you come like that, you know, it has certain practical fruits in your life. You don't wait to the last minute. You come early, but you might sit here in this place of worship, and say to the Lord in your private devotion, Lord, I'm glad I came this morning. And it's such a joy to a pastor to look down on a people ready to worship the Lord on the Sabbath morning and the Sabbath evening as he announces those most glorious words that any human lips could ever speak. Let us worship God. And he sees before him a waiting and expectant congregation of his people. For when your friends and your relatives say to you as the Sabbath day draws near the Christian Lord's day, Oh, won't you come and do this and that with us? What a great time we'll have together. And you look at them and you say to them, I'm sorry we can't go with you, it's the Lord's day. We go to church and we're glad to be there. It's one of the most effective evangelistic things that you can begin to say to the unbeliever. Now the second practical thing is this, isn't it? That we need to remember that if we are here under the drawing power of God's presence we're here, my dear friends, under the highest of constraints. You who work in the workaday world and the members of a union, perhaps you're commanded to do certain things at certain times, not all of which may be convenient or congenial to you, but the union says it and you must do it. But we are here on the Lord's Day morning by a constraint far higher than any power of unions upon the earth. We are here under the constraint of the Spirit of God himself. And oh, how we are bound then, my dear friends, to avoid all intrusions into our worship, all distractions of every kind. We have six days in the week to discuss our businesses and our sports and our activities and our worldly interests, many of which are lawful for the Christian to engage in. But when the Lord's day has come, I am here by a heavenly and holy constraint and all my energies should be channeled in to the desire to seek and to find the Lord my God. And you know the third practical outcome is this, isn't it? When we think of the strong language of the psalmist in verses 1 and 2, do we see as he did but the Lord's worship and His day is like the market day of our soul, where we may go in and trade for heavenly wares and receive them and be enriched. Do you keenly anticipate the Lord's day? Do you make preparation for it? Do you give yourself wholeheartedly to its activities and delight in them? Do you End the day profitably. Do you worship the Lord and return home glad that you have traded in heavenly goods? And do you seek as the day ends to estimate the profit to your immortal soul for having felt the drawing presence of the Lord, that your feet indeed have been standing Within your gates, O Jerusalem, this should be the effect of the first two verses of this psalm upon us if we are in Christ. But do you notice secondly, there is the dignity of his praise in verses three through five. Look at those verses with me. Jerusalem is built like a city. But is closely compacted together. That is where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to praise his name and so forth. Now, what is he saying here? On the surface, you see, it's a description of the city's layout, its houses and streets and buildings, all drawn together in a very compact way. And that was true of literal Jerusalem. Because you may remember, those of you who are attending the adult Sunday school classes on these Lord's Day mornings, the description of Jerusalem, built on a flat plateau of rock with ravines around three of its sides. And a very narrow space to build a great city as a result. But you see, he's not really describing the physical environs of Jerusalem at all. But in the inspired words of the psalmist, He's describing the church militant at worship. And this is the second reason for the pilgrim's gladness. But as he thinks of Jerusalem, there is not only the drawing power of God's presence, but there is also the dignity of his praise. That he will have the opportunity of joining with countless myriads of the tribes of Israel before the very presence of Jehovah and aid them in bringing in that revenue of godly praise that belongs to the Lord alone. Now, he describes it in three different ways. Look at them with me. In verse 3, you notice, this is a holy unity that is involved in the dignity of God's praise. Jerusalem is built like a city but is closely compacted together Now what does he see? As he thinks of the worship of God and spiritually he envisages himself there in Jerusalem. He sees a holy unity of purpose among God's people as a city that is compacted together. And so it is the vision of a church that is one and indivisible. One united whole. Something that cannot be divided. Now we so often on earth see the detentions and the divisions of God's people and they plunge us, don't they? Into deep despair we sing that great militant hymn of the church that has a verse within it. Though with a scornful wonder men see her sore oppressed by schisms, rent asunder, by heresies distressed. And alas, that is sometimes true as a picture of the church on earth. And you wonder, how can she ever be called by the name of a church? And it's answered in the wonderful paradox that God sees the church militant as the forerunner of the church triumphant. He does not see her divided as we do. But tightly compacted together, whatever the visible church may appear to be to us. She is one bride. She is one flesh. She is one body. So that as that hymn goes on, that she on earth hath union with God the Three in one and blessed sweet communion with those whose rest is one. A oh, holy and blessed unity upon the earth so that we are one, beloved, with believers of antiquity and believers of modernity and believers of the future. And this church is dear to God as the apple of his eye and should therefore be dear to all his people as well. And we need to have a sense of that greatness and holy unity of the church as we gather here in this auditorium on Sunday mornings. You know, I was just thinking the other day that there are more people in Jacksonville every Lord's Day morning worshiping the Lord than go to see the great events of sports in the Gator Ball. The Bulldogs or the Gators or whatever they are called. You know, if that was held every week, not more than 1,000 people would be there in that great auditorium to watch these games of sport if they were held every week. Yet vast numbers of Christian people in this city every week gather together to worship the Lord and attend upon the invisible God. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. A holy unity unites us together. What a glorious entity the Church of God is. But do you notice, secondly, there is a fruitful diversity. In verse 4 at the beginning, this is where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord. Now it's interesting to me that twice over, he emphasizes the tribes. Both in verse 4, the tribes of the Lord, but tribes go up. Why this emphasis? Well, certainly to tell us that this unity should never be interpreted as a uniformity. Israel is one, yet it is also a family of tribes, each with its own well-marked character and characteristics. And surely it teaches us the lesson that while true worship of God is essentially onefold and must always be characterized by the biblical elements of worship: the praise of God, the offering of prayer, the preaching of His words, the taking of an offering. While there is a unity in that worship, there may also be a diversity within those bounds of the regulative principle. And, of course, it must always be our endeavor to ensure as far as possible that that tribal diversity, if I may call it, is brought in to a national unity. But we need to remember that the church in heaven is comprised of Christians of all nationalities and cultures and backgrounds, and they are praising God through all eternity. So on earth, we are able to celebrate the diversity of worship within the bounds, I trust, of a holy unity. There is one vine, there may be many branches, but tithes go up to worship the Lord. But do you notice, thirdly, there is a divinely given authority in verses 6 through 5. They gather together to do what? To praise the name of the Lord. What is the purpose of this holy unity, this fruitful diversity? Well, it is to enable us to praise the Lord, and secondly, to ensure that we live under his authoritative counsel. And it is David Dixon in his commentary upon this psalm who says very helpfully that the purpose of the ordinance of God, of holy covenanting and Communing and joining in public worship is to acknowledge the grace and goodness of God, to glorify Him, for the tribes go up to praise and give thanks to the name of the Lord. Listen, my dear friends, one person, the living God, takes all our attention in worship. This suffices who have made the pilgrimage to the house of God. This is the substance of true worship. This takes all our attention. Why do I say this? Because we're living in a day and an age where there is a negation, a negation of biblical worship. We play up the personality of the pastor. We're taken up with the choir and its anthems. Our attention is focused on this Thing that occurs within the worship service whether it's authorized in scripture or not is not a question to our minds we're absorbed in the additional elements added to the worship service and so often this is abhorrent to the living God because our earthly worship is the counterpart of our heavenly Where the cherubim and the seraphim of glory continually do cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. My dear friends, let us avoid all those practices that put man on top, those gimmicks, those transient fads of this age that will be looked back in an age to come with wonder and amazement. Let us pray that the Lord will not remove his churches away from him, the lampstands out of their places and leave an empty sepulchre behind because it is no longer one person, the living God, that takes up all our attention. But you see, they also went to be under the authoritative counsel of God, didn't they? Look at verse 5, quickly with me. There were thrones there, the thrones of the house of David, which surely symbolized behind those thrones the rule of Jehovah over his people, that God had settled his king there. God had chosen this city as the center of his worship. And the thought, therefore, is But if we come to the worship of God, to praise the name of God, we also come to live under the royal legislation of his holy throne. To live under the authoritative counsel of the living God. You know, in the older churches, that's why this pulpit would not have been here but much higher up not to emphasize that the preacher is six feet above contradiction, but to emphasize that we are all under the authority of God's own inspired words. And if you are charmed, my dear friend, to come to the house of God to praise his name, you should equally be charmed to come to that house because there is the throne of God and of your reigning Savior, ever avenging wrongs done to his church, ever protecting his church from all its enemies, ever securing us in his royal word of promise and command, so that we may say, He reigns, you saints, exalt your strange, your God is king, your savior reigns, and he is at the Father's side, the man of love, the crucified. Oh, happy such a people to be under such a rule as this. Now thirdly, as I draw to a close, do you notice there is the design of his purposes in verses 6 through 9? It's the third reason for the pilgrim's gladness. But only where the Lord is worshipped is there the possibility of real and lasting peace. And prosperity. Oh, the tragedy of this age that men and women are heedlessly and thoughtlessly with great activity seeking for peace and prosperity in every place except the one place that they will truly find it in the presence and the worship of the living God. Do you notice how that is the theme of verses 6 through 9? At the beginning of verse 6, again in verse 7, at the end of verse 8, and taken up as the last thought of verse 9 in the word prosperity in Hebrew related to the very same word peace. Shalom. And it is vital to grasp then, beloved, that if I have been drawn into His presence and experienced the dignity of His praise, I am going to find that my heart is led out into devotion and activity for Zion's good. I am going to pray and work and plan that others may find the peace and prosperity that I have found in the house of God and it leads to three blessed responses with which I finish. Now remember, as we look at these, that what Jerusalem was to the ancient pilgrim, the churches, to the people of God today. Did he pray? We must pray. Did he plan? We must plan. Did he pledge his life for Zion's good? We must do similarly. If our worship is real and rich in the presence of God. Three things. He prayed, verses six and seven. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And he tells us how to pray in verse 7. May there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. My dear friend, if you are conscious at all that you have been an exile in the land of Meshach and dwelling too long in the tents of Kedah, and you have longed for the fellowship of God in his Zion, your covenant relationship with him will bind you in heart and soul to intercede for the well-being of his church, for the fellowship of his saints. And if you can do nothing else in this world, you will pray and intercede as never before as we're going to sing at the end of this service, for her my tears shall fall, for her my sighs ascend, for her my prayers and toils are given till toils and prayers shall end. This vital ministry of intercession And I say to you who are training for the ministry this morning, you who are officers in this congregation, however busy you are in the Lord's work, the most vital ministry in which you can ever engage is to bow your knee in patient, reverent prayer, in earnest supplication, that God will bless his Zion. It is the greatest work upon the face of the earth. Do you notice, secondly, we must plan in verse 8, for the sake of my brothers and friends, I will say, peace be within you. And here is prayer, surely, going beyond desire into action, where it issues in speech and activity, and his desire is given wings, as it were, by the great motive of the good of God's people who are knit together with him in a holy pilgrimage of faith and worship. For the good of my companions in the faith, I will seek the prosperity of Zion. And oh, beloved, we know, do we not, but it is by a flourishing church that our children are blessed but our neighbors are blessed, but our fellow countrymen are likely to be blessed. And oh, how important to plan our activities that they are geared in to the holy desire and activity of upholding the name of God's Zion. But thirdly, do you notice in verse 9, we are to pledge our lives For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your prosperity. What is this if it is not a pledge of all our energies for the service of God's church? Do you love Zion this morning? Have you been drawn here by the cords of his presence? Do you know something of the dignity of his praise? Then it will lead to serve and to sacrifice To spend and to be spent. I will seek your prosperity, he says. In everything that I do, I will seek your good. Listen as I finish this morning. It's the least response that you can make, isn't it? And there is simply no upper limit. You're pledging yourself to the prosperity of Zion. Oh, my friends, this morning, we are among great things. The church is much more important than mere buildings. Here is the building of a spiritual house for all eternity that uses living stones consisting of all believers in the Lord Jesus. And what we've been thinking about Ah, surpasses the architectural beauty of the Taj Mahal and every great building that human hands have ever erected. This is a building of God made without hands, eternal in the heavens, of which I, by grace, am a part. And I must pray. And I must bear testimony to Zion. And I must pledge my life for Zion's good. And by such efforts, outsiders will be brought into the grace of the Lord Jesus and become a fresh supply of living stones for God's growing and glorious kingdom upon the earth. Is that where you are this morning? Oh, my friends, as I finish, what a precious privilege to be part of the church of the living God, we hail your assemblage upon the earth. With bended knee, we pray that you may have peace and felicity. The drawing power of his presence, the dignity of his praise, the design of his purpose. May we be part of it by his grace. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this psalm this morning in all its loveliness and all its tenderness and all its directness to our hearts. Make us truly say with the psalmist, I was glad when they said to me, let us go up to the house of the Lord. Amen.